The year is 1966. I'm Dave. I'm Zach. And this is My Marvelous Year. podcast where we go through Marvel's entire history year by year from its origins to today. I'm Dave, the quote-unquote comic book expert, founder of comicbookherald.com, here alongside Zach, the comic book newcomer who doesn't know who Dupe is. And if you don't know who Dupe is either, that means you've got, as I just learned today, that's why I call it out. If you don't know either, you've got, um, let's see, what are we on? We're on 1966 today. And it's going to take till about the year 2001 until you can understand that reference. So we got a ways to go, but we're going to we're gonna stick to 66 comics today. Again, this is part two. We recommend you go back and listen to 1966 part one if you haven't already because yep. there are some classics in there. Some all-timers. We talked about Amazing Spider-Man, If This Be My Destiny, Fantastic Four, In the Coming of Galactus. And this second half, not... Not quite as Stone Cold classic, but there are some gems in here and some really important ones as well. Yeah, yeah, when we get to Spider-Man. And this is this is a pretty special episode, Dave. You know why? Uh, well, it's not. I, I thought we'd be doing it on Valentine's Day, so I thought maybe for that reason, but we're not even. <laughs> so, no, I'm not sure. Well, we normally record these first thing in the morning, bright and early. Dave's munching on breakfast cereal. But this episode, we're recording late in the evening. Mm-hmm. So welcome to My Marvelous Year After Dark. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. Cracking the bruise. So watch me deteriorate over the, the course of this episode. We'll see how this goes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll uh, I'll kick things off. This episode's going to be real wet and wild. You know? Don't, <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Actually, I'm, I'm joking, but the artist for Tales to Astonish 76, which we're reading first up, mm-hmm. is Gene Colon. Is it Colon? Colon? I say Gene Colon. I don't know if that's right. Yeah. He has, I'm going to say, a proclivity towards gams, <laughs> towards the, the thighs and the glutes. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed this? <laughs> well, I think I think he draws more muscle-bound figures in general. They're muscular, but like Namor's thighs get really, really out of control. Yeah. In here. And Iron Man, at one point... Uh, I don't think we're actually going to read it, but I posted it on the Slack today. Mm-hmm. There's a picture of Iron Man here with a caboose so big. It's like it's like <laughs> that Kim Kardashian picture. Like, yeah. you definitely could just put some champagne flutes <laughs> I rest mean, on the back of There's a There's definitely a market for that. And you know what? Actually, looking back at my first note here, I thought it was... I thought it was a note about the Hulk. No, I was just writing, there's a hulking Submariner on this cover. <laughs> <laughs> we're just checking this one out to see what the Hulk and Namor are up to, I think. And uh, I'm not going to get too heavy into the plot details. This one is, uh, it's called Uneasy Hangs the Head. And it's mostly about like Atlantean royal politics, right? So we've got um, Warlord Krang scheming for the crown as he always is. Namor's trying to keep everybody in line and protect 
Dorma, his his lady love. I mean, honestly, this is like, this is what I think of when I think of Namor in the 60s, is you've got his Krang conquering lieutenant trying to usurp power. You've got mm-hmm. Lady Dorma pining after his affections and, and Namor not necessarily really taking it seriously because he's got, you know, for example, Sue Storm. Um, who he's truly right. in love with. So honestly, like, and, and we've seen this in Fantastic Four issues we've read already. I, I just don't feel like Namor really progresses past this, even though there might be fun moments. You know, again, like like you're saying. Yeah, I don't I don't hate it. Like, the, yeah, uh... it's not bad per se. It's just I feel like it never really, I don't know. I'd be interested to talk to somebody who's like, I love Namor from this era. And here's <laughs> why. Because to me, it's like, it kind of just beats the same drum. Yeah, sure. I, there's a... There's one point that I can't believe I've never thought of this before. Atlantis is underwater, correct? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Right. Okay. Because the way they draw it looks like it's just normal rooms where everyone is walking around. Mm-hmm. Like they all wear shoes. They all walk everywhere. No one is swimming anywhere. It's very strange. And it's weird that I never noticed it before this point. Yeah. Yeah. Basically just the same drawings that they always do except tinted blue. Right. Yeah. It's like a, It's like they have the same... Um, set design you know for like a tv show they're like well we have to use this room because that's what the apartment is you know so it's yeah they just keep using it um one note i had here in the very early going is uh namor's afraid of fire he's like Hmm. very early in this he's scared of fire which seems entirely at odds with his debut battle against the original human torch and subsequent battles we've seen him in Against Johnny Storm, the torch. Yeah, that's true. That hasn't come up before. And also, he just he's good at water, right? Right. It seems like he, he's got a natural protection. Yeah. I thought okay. that was a very weird detail. Uh, the, the only other thing I really wanted to point out here is, is at the end, Namor is dealing with all the, 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 the weight on his shoulders of being king. And he says, he who wears the crown is monarch of loneliness. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a very- it's a good line. The, uh, the second story here is called I Against a World. And all the plot here is in the synopsis for what happened in the last issue. Yeah. <laughs> which is that the Hulk was charging the White House to warn the president that Rick Jones needed help. And then the military zapped him with the T-gun that transported him to the 25th century. Which, this is the most, like, pedantic, um, well, actually, that I get about this is that they do not keep track of which futures are which. And it actually kind of drives me nuts. You know, like we've had that the 25th century is this utopia. The 30th century is also a utopia. The 40th, am I saying? Yeah, the 40th century is where we've got this like war-torn dystopia. And they just keep mixing them up. It doesn't matter at all. Well, it will start, it'll start to matter as they kind of revisit those places in story. I just, I liked those details. I liked the detail that they kind of had this segregated as like things get better for a really long time. And then they take a sharp plummet down. And I, I kind of like that they chop these up into distinct eras, yeah. and then they just play so fast and loose with it. I like I like knowing the timeline to be like this is the timeline where yeah. apocalypse rules the earth, and we can go back there in future stories, and it's still the same timeline as opposed to these where it's just mm-hmm. like, and we're in the future, but it's a nebulous, unconnected future at, at least at this stage. Well, it's not even that because they do they specify they specify which ones are which, and then they just well they don't. don't they're not faithful to what they've written. Yeah, right. I guess it's more that. Yeah. Anyway, he, he's in the future. He fights a bunch of future soldiers that have future technology. It's a bunch of Hulk action. I don't think it's particularly good Hulk action. It's kind of just standard Marvel action. Back home in the present day, General Ross is <laughs> is in trouble with the brass over uh, losing the Hulk. Like, I don't... He's apt to the future, but he doesn't know how. 
And uh, <laughs> the end of this issue is kind of weird and almost made me want to read the next one. Almost, but not. Which is that Hulk is on top of some facility in the future and a hatch door pops open and out pops the Executioner from Thor comics. Mm. <laughs> which, I mean, it's not a twist. It's just a thing that happened. But <laughs> I'm curious, I guess. <laughs> yeah, sort of. Uh, yeah, I mean, we definitely, the Tales to Astonish inclusion here is is really just like, here's what's happening in this magazine. Here's where Namor and Hulk are and where they're going to be. Because as we, as we've talked about, as we've gone through this, like Hulk loses his solo ongoing pretty quickly and he won't get it back for a bit. So him getting actually a solo story and not just like a cameo role is an improvement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like Hulk has a kind of rough sixties when you think about it in terms of primetime appearances, even though we've talked about him a decent amount through cameos. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely true. He's just, he doesn't have uh there's nothing specific that like sets him apart. You know, there's like no one interesting thing about the Hulk besides his powers. Well, he's not even bigger and stronger than the rest of the Marvel universe in as right. notable a way, you know? So even at that very basic, like childlike, what are his powers level? Like he's not, it's, he's just like, he's like a poor man's thing. It's like, He's strong, but he's not funny. The thing, or Namor, or Thor, yeah. or, or Juggernaut, or any number of just strong guys. Yeah. I do think Hulk, it's interesting to me, people whose one of their favorite characters is the Hulk, because he's definitely one that I've had a harder time getting into. I think modern runs have changed that. I think like in the 2000s, there are situations where I'm like, oh, the Hulk's really interesting all of a sudden. Um but honestly, up to that point, it, the, those instances are kind of far between for me. The only Hulk that I can think of reading that I like is the Ultimate Universe Hulk, where Hulk is like a serial killing psychopath and Bruce Banner is this, you know, sweaty, nervous vegan. <laughs> yeah, that seriously leans into the villain angle yeah. that, that you know, Stan and Jack kind of tease out in some of his earlier appearances here. And if you want to hear us talk about the Ultimates... Go on over to patreon.com slash my marvelous year where we have just, we uh, just need we just need one wealthy benefactor to, <laughs> to drop three hundred dollars yeah. a month yeah to get it's, us it's the next my marvelous year goal so check it out um the next issue we read was daredevil number 18 um this one's kind of interesting because we have uh there's a note from stan or somebody in editorial on the cover that uh there's a writing credit to stan lee for this issue but then uh, there's a note that says Stan could only write the first seven pages before he, I think, had to take a vacation or something like that or, or didn't have time, basically. And uh, and Denny O'Neill took over plot. So this is the year, 1966, that we see Denny O'Neill enter the Marvel bullpen and kind of comics at large. And if you are um, familiar with Batman comics history, you may well know that his work with Neil Adams form some of the most foundational and iconic Batman stories uh, in that character's history. So Denny O'Neill is a major player. And he would stay on like as editor of that title in the 80s. And he runs, I would know. Denny O'Neill? Yeah, the Batman stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, so like everything he did with Neil Adam, like they created Ra's al Ghul, um, Tali al Ghul. So like the the head of the demon um, yeah, yeah, or demon's head, that's, that's his stuff in the 70s. And then like the stuff he would edit and write in the 80s, I mean, is, is so much of the big stuff that we think of now. The one that... Um, probably is the most well-known is a story called Venom, not to be confused with Marvel's Venom, uh, but it's a Legends of the Dark Knight series where it introduces, you know, Bane's drug, uh, Venom. It's not a Bane story, hmm. but it's a Venom story. And it's basically, it's like Batman dealing with drug addiction. It's pretty good. Huh. I, 
doing this podcast has made i don't know why it just made me realize i've never read i think i've told you this on the show Mm -hmm. i've never read a dc comic prior to crisis on infinite earth i don't think i've read a single issue of anything except like I think I read the first action comics, like action comics number one I've read, but that's it. The O'Neill and the Adams Batman is definitely one of the better pre-crisis, like pick it up and try it out uh, books yeah. out there, I think. Yeah, well, if we ever, if DC ever makes it easy enough for us to do a My DC Year, yeah. then I'll probably end up checking all of those out. Seriously, yeah. No, the people are clamoring for it. So yeah, so that's that's like the, um, the behind the scenes bullpen piece of Daredevil number 18. We also got uh, Jazzy John Romita. On art, and uh, we're going to talk about him a bit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, th- this is interesting. We we can talk about this a little bit. Where John Romita came on, basically to replace Steve Ditko on Spidey. Yeah, yeah, on Spider Man because Stanley and Steve Ditko were having a falling out, and I think Stanley saw the writing on the wall. But he brought him in to illustrate some Daredevil issues where the the past two issues Spider Man was in. Uh, because he wanted to see how John Romita would do yeah. drawing Spider-Man. So yeah. he pulled Spider-Man into a different comic as like a trial run for this guy. I, I really like his uh, his work here on Daredevil. I think this is yeah. a, a pretty good issue. I Okay, so I, I went through a real arc with this issue where I saw the saw the cover art of Daredevil fighting this like huge guy named Gladiator, right? With yeah. spinning blades or something. And I was like, Ugh, gross. Like, <laughs> I'm just over Daredevil fighting big costumed heroes mm-hmm. I, I don't know it just doesn't work for me i'm not interested in it so is melvin potter but go on but i wait what yeah, just a just a little melvin potter humor for you but oh, <laughs> please continue okay. <laughs> okay uh i really came around on this issue yeah i like this one a lot yeah like the character the, the characterization was really good the villain was interesting the art was good this kind of made me want to keep reading daredevil which is <laughs> <laughs> Not something I expected going into this. Yeah, so so eighteen does one of my favorite Daredevil things, which it's kind of a Foggy Nelson story, and in particular, it's a Foggy Nelson pretending to be Daredevil story, uh, which I I can think of a version of this that we'll get to later in the My Marvelous Year journey that is one of my favorites really of all time. Um, it's a story called Guts, I believe, if you're familiar. But this one, it's fun. It's so basically what the context for coming into this issue is Foggy has been, he started pretending that he's Daredevil to impress Karen Page because he wants to take Karen out on a date. Of course, her being the love interest of literally everyone she works with. And Foggy goes to Melvin Potter, uh, a new character, goes to his costume shop, seeking a Daredevil costume so that he can pretend to be the uh this hero yep yeah he he keeps dropping hints to karen and he's just trying to impress her because he's in love with her but the way he drops hints is really funny like he doesn't come out and just say i'm daredevil and tell her he just keeps saying stuff like oh i've got some personal business tonight of our like I've got to go to the dry cleaners, get my horns polished. Oops, did I say that out loud? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, he's not subtle, but he's kind of pretending to play it coy a little. Right, right. Hmm, have you ever realized that you've never seen me and Daredevil in the same room? Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, totally. So so this person that Foggy goes to get his costume from is Melvin Potter. It turns out he hates heroes. He thinks that basically it's all in the costume, everything they do, and he's a costume maker. So he attributes all of their success to their cool duds. Uh, meanwhile, can, can I just I something just clicked for me, mm-hmm. which is th- there's a weird showcase here of every single like 
Marvel superhero right now. Yeah. Like Doctor Strange and Thor and Captain America are here in his costume shop because he has costumes for all of them. Yeah. This was probably, again, like a reason for like Stan Lee saying, hey, why don't you just draw the whole... Uh, <laughs> the mm. whole lineup let's see how you do with it because it it's weirdly like it's not just the costumes it just looks like they're wax figures of all these heroes yeah it was probably more just like auditioning yeah a little little tryout element definitely um my, <laughs> i almost said mike murdoch matt murdoch is concerned about foggy's uh, new game he's playing because he thinks he's gonna get hurt um he's also of course lamenting that he can't be the one to tell karen that he's daredevil and impress her he overhears from from the next room that Foggy is kind of BSing Karen about mm-hmm. being Daredevil. But then he walks into the room to, to talk to them. And there's this really funny moment where he walks in and he's like, but now I've got to remember to act the part of an ordinary blind man. And then he opens the door and just like stumbles in. Hello, is anybody here? <laughs> Even though there's, <laughs> there's people in the middle of the room just talking. Yeah. It's like he's he's laying it on a little thick. You know, it's actually one of those things with uh, with early Daredevil. It's, it's sort of like, um, I'm talking a little too much about Batman, but it's sort of like Batman pretending to be a playboy. You know, and it's like that almost gets lost today. But like Daredevil pretending to be like the average blind man is kind of yeah. comical and overlooked. Like yeah. he doesn't yeah, have yeah, to do sure. it as much. Yeah, he says like they're worried about him. And he's like, oh, don't worry. I never cross the street until a good Samaritan comes up and helps me. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Foggy's going to get some of that sweet date action um, by by going out with Karen. And uh, Mike, jeez, I did it again. Matt Murdock. <laughs> Uh, Mike Murdoch. We're, we're gonna get there next year. Actually, you're gonna you're gonna love it. I promise. Oh, I saw that and I thought it was a typo that you put. No, that's a real thing. That's a <laughs> okay, that's a real right. deal. Uh, so Daredevil stalks them. Uh, Gladiator, he shows up now. So Melvin builds himself a costume, saying it's all in the costume. I bet I could do what they do, except I don't like them. So I'm gonna put razors on my wrists and try to fight them. So he goes to take out Foggy, who is in his Daredevil costume, and obviously Foggy cannot compete. Uh, Gladiator, aka Melvin, is quite disappointed with Foggy's attempt at a fight. He says, "Wow, that was. I thought he'd be a you know pretty good tryout. That was way easier than I expected." Lo and behold, shortly thereafter, the real Matt shows up, fights him, and it's real Foggy out to probably pun intended. I don't know what that means. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I don't know if those thoughts are or not. Yeah, but it's actually Foggy out, so like it all becomes obscured. Whether Gladiator is that what he calls himself? Yeah. Whether Melvin Potts realizes which. Daredevil he's fighting, he thinks that Foggy Nelson turns out to be actually Daredevil, and Karen doesn't know who's there, and it, you know, it's kind of a big mess. Yeah, my favorite my favorite bit in the whole thing is Portly Foggy is uh is like an overweight Daredevil, you know? So yeah, I think yeah. uh there's an excuse a lot of times in comics to draw like costume parties of people in these worlds dressing up as superheroes. So you got all sorts mm-hmm. of body shapes and sizes. And it's not something we see very often in the Marvel Universe at this point, but just seeing, like, kind of a chubby guy, and then, like, police being like, oh, Daredevil's looking a little flabby these days. You know? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's a nice little touch. But what I liked is uh, Daredevil gets dragged underwater by Gladiator, whose mask gives him a supply of oxygen. So Daredevil is holding his breath, and Gladiator thinks that he's passed out and drowning underwater. He comes back up, and <laughs> Daredevil pops out of the water and is like, Oh, I had no problem breathing. I've been working on my yoga breathing. Yeah. Which is very funny to picture, like, Daredevil working on his pranayam. <laughs> Just also not not what yoga breathing is, but... Maybe not the way you do it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so a, a nice replacement for the uh, catch-all judo there as well. But that's going to bring us next to... What is it? Strange Tales? Strange Tales 146. 146. Okay. So... 
This is a split Nick Fury, Doctor Strange story. We're here for the Doctor Strange story, so I'm not really going to go over the Nick Fury plot too much. Yeah. But he just has a bunch of really good lines here <laughs> that are very funny. I just wanted to call out the the outfit that they're fighting here can uh, is producing all these killer robots. Nick Fury says, we're dealing with an outfit that can turn out artificial men to do any kind of job, just like Marvel can grind out comic books. <laughs> <laughs> I liked as a little wink. Yeah. Um, also, the way that Nick Fury talks to everyone around him is really funny. And it's like the G-rated version of a grizzled drill sergeant. Yeah. Right? Like, it's like if you tried to push that uh, the drill sergeant from uh, Full Metal Jacket into a G-rated Disney movie, the, the expressions he uses. So he says, uh, that's the chicken scratchinest understatement of the year, you blasted meathead. Or, shut up, you blasted ham bone. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the most toothless insults. <laughs> I, I don't even know how I'd react if someone called me a hambo. I know, seriously. Yeah, it's like it's stuff that sounds super antiquated today, but I really enjoy it for that fact. Oh, it's very fun. Yeah. yeah. And it's just it's such um it really characterizes Fury because mm-hmm. people will use nicknames like that. You know, Ben'll call somebody a crumbum or something, but like nobody does it with as much uh uh, like verbosity as Fury. Like when he's stringing together weird antiquated insults, nobody does it better. Oh, and it's nonstop too. Yeah. He's constantly piling abuse on his subordinates. Mm-hmm. So we're here for the number two story, Doctor Strange. And uh, is this still Steve Ditko? I didn't write that down. Yeah. So this is like, so again, we're like, we're basically, we're off Ditko on Spidey. And this is him wrapping up the search for eternity on Strange. And then he's pretty much going to be out of Marvel uh, for forever, <laughs> crazily. Yeah, uh, I mean, he goes out with a bang. This is there's really not that much plot here, but this is a beautiful issue, mm-hmm. especially Doctor Strange himself. It's just looking so cool. His cape just is getting bigger and more billowing, and he's got those big sharp points over his shoulders. Like, yeah, he looks good. There's a couple splash pages here. Uh, okay, so Dormammu is trying to figure out how to destroy Doctor Strange. And he says, well, I can't destroy Doctor Strange while Eternity is in the way, which I was like, that doesn't make sense because Eternity didn't really step in to help Doctor Strange last time. He didn't do anything. Right. He didn't do anything. Yeah. That's that's the point. And I was thinking that, which is kind of interesting. I was like, well, that's a weird, I don't know. That's some strange logic on his part. It is. So Dormammu traps Eternity into some different realm to, to keep him out of the fight. And then he lures Doctor Strange into his own realm. Uh, in order to attack him, mm-hmm. <laughs> Eternity immediately like bursts free of this prison and says, I'm not interested in stepping in between the fight or stepping into the fight between you and Doctor Strange. But since you bound me, now I am. Yeah, right. Like Im- immediately answering my question of like, why do you think Eternity is going to get involved? <laughs> Eternity is like, yeah, I wasn't going to, but <laughs> now I'm mad. <laughs> yeah, he didn't care. Dormammu dragged him in. Then he gets mad, which I, I really do like. Because this this battle should be pretty insignificant to him, you know the the embodiment, the cosmic concept of all that is, you know, right. like this is way beneath him. Um, I do like too that he would just immediately escape Dormammu's power, as powerful as we've seen Dormammu. Like he should not be able to compare to Eternity. Yeah, and so Doctor Strange is just basically <laughs> there as an observer to Dormammu and Eternity battling. And, uh, and in the end, it kind of seems like they destroy one another. Mm-hmm. That's what we take away is that Dormammu was blasted to bits and his essence is scattered through the universe. And also eternity has vanished um, because Doctor Strange basically doesn't need to be here for this issue. Like He's kind of just watching, <laughs> yeah. He, he, I don't think he does a thing. He shows up. 
He defends against Dormammu for a second, and then he just watches the whole thing unravel and escapes at the last moment. But so, the wind does catch his cape in really interesting ways. Oh, he he looks good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he always looks good. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and he gets swooped out by the Ancient One at the end, which leads to the Ancient One realizing that all these people back on Earth who Dormammu had captured are now free of his influence. And they're all free to go out and make amends for the evil they've done, except for Baron Mordo. Mordo. <laughs> except for Baron Mordo, who is going to be kept imprisoned by the Ancient One. Yes. We also get a little reconciliation between uh, Stephen and Clea here, mm -hmm. as they finally get to come face to face and kind of have a little moment and basically um, ultimately decide to kind of go their separate ways. Uh, I, yeah, I like this because I was worried that they were going to just see each other and like, embrace like lovers or something yeah and uh and it doesn't happen which makes sense because they've barely spoken <laughs> well it's like, like they are strangers at the end of the day yeah right exactly but i mean well we've seen that with johnny storm and crystal just weeping over each other when they've barely spoken and, and other marvel people you can't fight love every every instance of love in marvel comics so far has been what's the word like just completely all-encompassing love at first sight yeah so yeah it, w it wouldn't be surprised but i was glad that it didn't happen here uh, that leads us into... Ooh, we're going to a nice clip here. Leads us to Tales of Suspense, number 79. Oh, and I... So... Wait, wait. What? I accidentally read Tales of to Astonish, number 79. Was it any good? <laughs> Before, uh, nah, it was fine. Uh, I think it was uh, It was another Namor Hulk story. And yeah. um, the, the only thing I remembered was that Namor's thighs were, like, so juicy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I am going to be so glad when they start splitting these up uh, into more easily recognizable titles. Like, mm. it's way too easy to confuse Tales to Astonish with Tales... What is it? Strange Tales with Tales of Suspense. Like, I I couldn't tell you off the top of my head who's in which one at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't do um it doesn't do the books a lot of favors, I guess. Uh, it, yeah. Especially for readers now all these all these decades later especially since all those are like they all share a word like either tales or strange yeah right <laughs> uh, journey into mystery i remember is thor that one stands out the most because it's yeah. probably the most different anyway yeah so this is uh tales of suspense number 79 and i will call out i own this one it is one of my prized possessions i've got it on my wall behind me here and uh my dad gave it to me a copy of a true 60s tales of suspense and the reason he gave it to me is because this is the first appearance of namor's juicy thighs no i'm just kidding it's it's the first <laughs> appearance of the cosmic cube and i love the cosmic cube. <laughs> your dad just knows how much you love cubes he knows i'm a big cube guy specifically cubes of a cosmic <laughs> nature zach what what are your feelings about the cosmic cube cubes i think it my my view on cubes is tainted by the mcu because you know i kind of know what okay yeah this is a thing i i i think without the foreknowledge I, i'm taking this in a serious direction telling you what i really think that's fine cube. that's fine yeah yeah but uh I, I think without the knowledge of what it becomes or at least what's in the mcu i don't know actually if this like follows the same path so as, the MCU, uh, as it does in the mcu yeah the mcu cosmic cube and i think they call it a tesseract is uh is pretty different. Um, it's similar in some ways, but it's not it's not the version that I have kind of grown to love. So let's get into yeah, because we're not actually going to see what it does for a while. Yeah, and I and I will say the, one of the reasons I love the Cosmic Cube so much is the storytelling potential it has, specifically 
in a series of novels called the Chaos Engine Trilogy, which are uh, Marvel Universe novels, and everybody should check them out. They're really fun. Uh, it's part of the reason I love comics, Marvel uh, in particular. Wait, really? Like prose novels? It's about it's genuine. It's genuinely a big part of the reason I like Marvel. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Because I mean that that just surprised any time these like because of prose novels I read in high school. Yeah. Okay. I. I mean, is this like high school nostalgia? Or do you think they're actually like good? I own them. I have not read them again since. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> so I don't know. Well, that's interesting, though. Those, those like transmedia novelizations of stuff, you know, of like the Mass Effect games or mm-hmm. whatever. Any any kind of like adaptation always. I, I think Star Wars is known for like yeah. having some decent ones. Yeah. Star Wars has a huge canon of like new ideas that were being developed um, yeah. that that Marvel got rid of when they relaunched their comic book universe. Yeah, yeah. But anyway. Okay, yeah, yeah. So Tales of Suspense, number 79, titled The Red Skull Lives by Stanley Jack Kirby. We got uh, Artie Simek on letters here. So one thing I will note up front, there are so many panels in this issue with no background or a white background. And I've been noting that, noticing this in... Kirby's, uh, and I should clarify, we're talking about the, the Captain America B stories. These run as the second story in these issues, the Captain America ones, and these these Cap stories with Kirby on them. The Kirby art's generally good and, and often interesting. There's so many empty backgrounds. It's really bizarre because they're just white. Like, it looks like an unfinished product. I, the only thing I really noted about the art here is that there's like a slightly different color palette <laughs> than we've seen so far. It's, it's a little muted, I think. And maybe mm-hmm. part of that is that there's not these big, bright, colorful backgrounds. And I wonder if that is either A, an artistic choice, B, a practical choice because they didn't have the right ink. Because <laughs> yeah. some, some of these I wonder, like, I, I know I've heard lots of stories about just like, oh, the reason this character was colored this is because they only had this ink around. Right. Um, or C, if he just... his he was overloaded with work and that was the quickest shortcut he could take without it looking totally sloppy. Yeah, I could definitely see that. So speaking of that ink thing, did you ever hear that thing about uh, the Batman animated series? Why like its color palette was specific to, I think it was matching tiny tunes because that's like the mm. ink supplies that they had to work with. Yeah. And so there's like, there's a couple like odd color choices in that show. And it's because that was like the shade of green that they had to work yeah. with. Because that was the shade of green that they had left over from working with Tiny Toons or something. That's interesting, yeah. No, I can totally see that. Um, but yeah, it does stand out to me reading this. Nonetheless, the story's very good. It starts out with Captain America fighting a bunch of costume assassins that nobody else can see. So throughout these issues, or the early going at the very least, there's kind of this Cap's got enemies assailing him that nobody can see. And yeah. you'll find quite quickly it's part of a Red Skull plot to sort of drive him mad. Um, to try to make him think he's crazy. And we get the debut of Silver Age Red Skull. You know, we talked about him in our our Golden Age bonus, uh, his debut in Golden Age Cap Comics and how very different he is. And Tales of Suspense, it resurrects him the same way that Avengers 4 resurrected Cap um, in that he's kind of just around. And then all of a sudden we explain how it happened. Uh, He shows up in a green bathrobe and immediately <laughs> tells his Nazi um, subordinate that he needs to shave because he looks unkempt. So it's a heck of a debut. Okay, so this this is something that has always mystified me. 
I feel like walking into these issues, you would not know whether or not that red skull is some kind of disfigurement or if it's a mask. Yeah. The same way that I'm reading like 2005 Under the Red Hood right now, uh-huh. the Batman stuff, and Black Mask, who's basically the red skull, but with a black skull yeah. instead. Same thing. I don't know if that guy is wearing a mask or <laughs> his face is just this black skull. I kind of appreciate the ambiguity. Um, I yeah, also, yeah, it's interesting. There's something about the skull, and we'll get into this a little. He's so evil in a way that, honestly, it's difficult for other villains to even approach. Like, he's just yeah. the embodiment of evil that the idea of it being a mask is almost like, it almost rings hollow to me. Takes away the power. It's like, yeah. he sh- it's like he should look like that. How could a human look you know how could a normal looking human behave this way i don't know it's something about it where i'm like i actually kind of prefer it being his true his true red skull well don't don't tell me what (laughs) if it's the truth or not yeah uh, i don't really know no for sure Yeah, i think that's interesting so uh we find that he's been kept in suspended animation by experimental gas um since world war ii he basically collapsed under some rubble and and was kept this way he's found by another big introduction um aim scientists this is advanced idea mechanics and they uh they proceed with aim so red skull and his two nazi subordinates both are surviving survivors from world war ii and uh again they're like basically trying to make captain america think he's going nuts we also get the intro here of we find that aim has created what they've called the cosmic cube um we don't get a lot of background at this point yeah. but we know it's kind of this powerful weapon and cap sets out to uh or he does rather excuse me by the end of this issue which again is like a ton for 14 pages finds out the red skull's alive and he goes to track him down yeah yeah and uh so something about the red skull i wanted to mention <laughs> he kind of looks like the thing did you realize this or mm-hmm. did you notice that i guess i didn't think that but that's not shocking yeah if, if you got rid of the lines like the 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 cracks in the thing's face and mm-hmm. turned him red i think you'd be pretty close there's a lot of shots here where he looks very thingish yeah, we may have talked about this before, but I do think like Kirby faces tend to run together for me. Yeah, for sure. I I think I said that that all of his men are handsome boys and pretty girls. Yeah, like that's right. That's all of yeah. Like it's really tough. Like tell me the difference between Sue Storm, Janet Van Dyne, and Wanda Maximoff. Like their faces are pretty similar. Oh, uh, Wanda wears a fun hat. Thank you very much. Well, I mean, they all wear, I mean, that, that's how he distinguishes them is by big colorful costumes, but actually Wanda's face is a little different. But anyway, so that leads us into Tales of Suspense number 80. He who holds the cosmic cube. Oh, and actually this is the one with, uh, this is this is where the A story has Iron Man with that, like, big big butt in the back. He's, he's pretty thick. I'm not going to go into the rest of the story. It, it's actually okay. Like, all these Iron Man stories at the beginning are all right. It's uh, Iron Man facing off against Namor in this one specifically. It's pretty good. I did think it's weird that in the A story, Iron Man was doing a photo shoot with bottles of champagne. That seemed strangely <laughs> ahead of its time. <laughs> Iron Man breaks the internet. Yeah. Okay, so something I wanted to mention is that, like, the spy network subterfuge stuff is getting so complicated already Hmm. there's aim the what is what did you call it the advanced advanced idea mechanics yeah the advanced idea mechanics there's hydra Mm -hmm. there's them there's the red skull they're all like different but sometimes interconnected factions of evil doers who are all related to nazis maybe i 
it's honestly like a little overwhelming already and i feel like i've been reading a ton of these and i'm still a little lost when they're talking about it but the main thing to know is that aim created the cosmic cube and the red skull it's revealed here is stealing the cosmic cube from aim by hypnotizing when he met with the head what do they call him like the grand imperator of aim he he put this little like hypnotic chip on his hand when he shook his hand and convinced him to steal the cosmic cube for him the skull convinced the uh the aim guy right yeah which who i believe in in later years will become the scientist supreme um i, I think you're right that they call him the imperator here the grand imperator or some some yeah, fancy it's, it's a little confusing it's a little messy already yeah which, yeah i can see that it, you know you raise an interesting point that they didn't just use hydra again here uh, which yeah. I think actually probably a lot of people would expect, given the connections between Skull and Hydra, like in the MCU, and with a lot of like more recent modern controversies um, around Marvel events like Secret Empire. Like that's it is interesting that they're like now. Oh, should... Secret Empire is like its own thing. Also, that's that's a <laughs> or is that them? I I don't know. That's a lit. <laughs> yeah, I should know. You're right. No, yeah. there's a lot of them. Um, I like yeah. him as a as the science focused. Uh, spy and subterfuge guys but i i totally hear what you're saying that it's like yeah they're rolling them out there and you gotta you gotta keep up yeah aim aim popped up in some earlier nick fury story in uh in tales of tales to astonish Mm -hmm. you know on on their front they were a up and up military contractor that was secretly hydra maybe i think at least they're evil i don't i don't know i can't remember (laughs) yeah anyway aim creates the cosmic cube Red Skull is in the process of stealing it, having some guys fly it over to him that he's hypnotized. There's this really cool scene that cemented the Red Skull is like an up-and-coming villain to, to watch out for. One of his subordinates basically says something like, oh, it was brilliant for you to hypnotize AIM to steal the Cosmic Cube for us. Yeah. And Red Skull is so upset that this guy says us yeah. instead of you, <laughs> basically, that he he like puts on this thing and he's like, all right, well, it's been good working with you. And he shakes his hand, and then he basically he puts this mind control chip in the guy's hand, and then he tells him to pick up a gun, turn the safety off, and he walks out of the room <laughs> and has the guy just shoot himself while he's, like, behind the door in the next room smelling a flower on his lapel, like, just nonchalantly sniffing a flower while we hear the gun go off in the next room. And it's so, like, cold and calculated. Yeah. And it's one one of the most, like evil things we've seen a marvel villain do because i I wrote down the exact same thing like he's so he's so cruel in this instance in a way that like i don't even magneto or dr doom they do these well they don't kill people i think that's the difference Well, even if they try to they do these big bad things but they do them in like grandiose sort of like right almost fun ways you know whereas skull's just like cruel calculated one-on-one murder it's not something you see a lot here not getting his hands messy yeah 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 and i mean i do think there is something to like it isn't this because we keep talking about this where the villains get the heroes right where they want them and then they do the monologue for 10 minutes or they're like Mm -hmm. we're gonna unleash this rube goldberg machine of death on you yeah yeah finish you off and the red skull like is annoyed with this guy and then just shoots him with a gun yeah (laughs) Or has him shoot himself. Yeah, yeah, I do think he stands out in that regard. So Captain America sees this plane that AIM is flying and somehow gets onto it. And, oh, he like, he borrows a, a rocket from S.H.I.E.L.D. because he has an ID pass. <laughs> and he parachutes down onto this other plane. And he takes the controls and it crash lands on the Red Skull's private island. Yep. Where he's waiting for the Cosmic Cube. 
there's this big fight between the Red Skull and Captain America where they meet for the first time. And Red Skull reveals that he was the one behind Bucky Barnes' death. He tells Captain America this in order to distract him while Mm -hmm. he's fighting. He says, you think it was Baron Zemo, but really Baron Zemo was working for me. And he was just, you know, my lackey at the time. So ultimately, I'm the one who killed your teenage sidekick. It does a couple things there nicely of one, enraging Captain America to really raise the stakes in the battle. But two, it also sets up that like, I actually like the structure of, nope, Skull's villain 1A here, not Zemo. And that is important because Zemo's the one we've seen as the World War II relic to really face off against Cap until this point. Yeah. And they pretty much, Lee and Kirby are pretty quickly like, nope, here's the real one, which partially is just like, well, that's what you have to do to keep keep interest going. But it is also, it just feels true. It feels right. Well, it's it's also like, part of me thinks that it's just like, yeah, Baron Zemo's a guy with a purple bag glued to his head. Like, it's hard <laughs> to be like, haha, Captain America's arch villain. Like, this is the most evil man whose <laughs> tragic backstory is a, a glue-based accident yeah he's not as scary and i i like zemo too like zemo becomes interesting and he's actually already been kind of interesting but i think just visually red skull is just immediately that much more you know i mean he kind of cuts a a figure as like a german world war ii soldier but with this horrific red skull yeah right um and so we end up this issue with Captain America and the Red Skull battling it out for the Cosmic Cube. And I think this ends with Red Skull getting a hold of the Cosmic Cube. Yeah, so Skull's got the cube going into Tales of Suspense number 81. This is a story continued by Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Frank Giacoya, and Artie Simek. Um, The Skull begins by showing off the Cosmic Cube powers. So we get a sense of people have been talking about it, they've been talking about it. Finally, we get the Skull actually showing what it can do. And basically... It's just like a willpower machine. So the skull is essentially like, I can do anything I want to do. Anything I think of, I can do here. And he defeats Captain America easily with, um, you know, basically wishing power. Like he can just create any scenario that he wants and have it be true. Yeah, he just creates a like a a, a living golem to fight him. He, he creates a, a, a golden set or a set of golden armor uh, to put on himself. He shoots out flames he shoots out a sonic boom mm-hmm. like it just and he, it, it's a little bit like the infinity gauntlet from from the new avengers movie yeah right it's, it's not that not that dissimilar maybe not quite as powerful as that but like you get the idea it just turns it, i think he says it turns willpower into matter well and when we like the infinity gauntlet's a good comparison point because as we talk about like the most powerful instruments in the marvel universe one thing that Marvel writers have had to do over time is sort of identify and figure out like, well, how is the Cosmic Cube different than, say, the Infinity Gauntlet? Because when we're looking at Silver Age stuff, the Cosmic Cube is basically it's like, yeah, it's the winner take all device. Like you get this, you can do anything so long as you're holding it. Um, Skull gives a vision of basically, you know, he's kind of telling Captain America, like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take over Earth. I'm going to sap everyone's willpower and have them be my mindless slaves. And then we're going to take over the universe. So he like his ambition isn't even just like world takeover. It's going to the stars takeover, which is, again, like it just speaks to the Skull's sort of craven desire for all power. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it works like you feel like, oh, how is he going to stop the guy? Yeah. So, Good wrestling moves. It's <laughs> the answer. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, I do like in this issue, it's it's very much, we, we talked about 
uh, in our in our Patreon poll some of the worst Stan Lee tropes that's going on right now. And one of them is recycled plots. You get some sort of if this be my destiny recycled Captain America where he cannot give up, won't give up. I like it, even though we've read it in a slightly better version with Peter Parker very recently. But Cap, even in these um, insurmountable odds, will not give in to the skull until he feigns, or does he, to the skull that he will, rather than die, will stay around as the skull's humiliated slave, which of course the skull realizes is the ultimate defeat of of his enemy. Yeah, and I'd say that's like less of a plot trope than it is a theme. Yeah, so like I, I don't mind point. that, you know, because it's not like, I mean, somebody just trying their hardest is not. I just think the dialogue reads, it, this whole scene reads very similar to me, having just yeah. read If This Be My Destiny. Stanley is getting good at this, and maybe he just realizes he's good at this, mm-hmm. because we're going to get the same thing with Thor. Yeah. It's like un, unbeatable odds, and then you just feel their anger and fury building, and you're like, oh, that's how they win. Yeah. They're real mad. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's even, I don't even know if it's a critique so much as an observation that yeah. he is that he is hammering these same themes across heroes because it is mm-hmm. at the end of the day it's a thing i like about marvel comics um yeah about that yeah about the heroes. generally it works for me yeah so captain america's faint or his fake out allows him like you said the chance to do some sweet wrestling moves on the skull he gets the cube just enough out of his grip that the skull is not completely all-powerful um Basically, Skull still has it, but Caps just holds on to him until finally the Skull in his golden armor and the cube falls out of his hand and into the ocean. The Skull sinks to the bottom of the ocean because he cannot wish this armor off of him anymore. <laughs> which, I, which is, like, pretty fun and ironic. Yeah. Uh, and, I like, Captain America even points out how ironic it is. <laughs> he says, an ironic death. Yeah. And the issue ends uh, with both the Skull and the cube vanishing from sight for the time being. Buried deep under the sand. Under the ocean. Yeah. The only, the only note I wrote down for Tales of Suspense 81 is mm. good fighting. <laughs> because it's just, <laughs> it's just a good, fun fight, but there's not really that much more to it. I did note that, like, as, as we're talking about it, Kirby's so good at kicking things off with action. Like, it's very notable going through all these comics, and then you get to a Kirby one, and it's just immediately in the thick of it. Whereas, like, and it's, it's some of it's just different styles. I don't know necessarily one's good or bad. Um, but, like, if you read, like, Spidey, it might be, like, eight pages of, like, people sitting around and talking. Like, they're very different things for different reader sets. Kirby's, you just, there's fist flying from panel one. I think I prefer the Spidey thing, but yes. Um, I mean, it, it worked here. It was good for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that... I was thinking of looking at all these Iron Man comics. We're not talking about them much because they're, they're fine. They're not great. I think they're the best to look at, honestly, with the Gene Colan art. Yes, yes. The art's very good. What do you think Iron Man's suit is made out of? Because the way it's drawn, it makes it look a little bit like the yellow is just cloth and the red is metal. <laughs> I mean, plastic at the lightest. It tears like cloth, and then the weight. I said plastic at the lightest. Like I don't, I don't think there's supposed to be any cloth on there. I, I've never. He, get, he gets all torn way. up when he's fighting Namor, and it just looks like rips and fabric. Oh. And then also, like while he's putting it in his briefcase, it just like his mask folds in half. The yellow part. Yeah. It, it's very strange because it's just like one of these things you think you would know what material this is made out of, but there's also that detail that I'm in love with from I think it's Spider-Man Annual number one, where Spider-Man says. Hey, what's that clanging noise? And then Iron Man shows up, yeah. and I've never been able to get that idea or that sound out of my head. Yeah. That Iron Man just walks up like, clong, clong, clong. <laughs> like, 
yeah. just, just a, a knight in, in armor clinging along. Right, right. But, but yeah, some of the art suggests that like it's just the red parts that are metal. The rest is just like it doesn't bend the way. Yeah, it doesn't bend the way you expect metal to when you see it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I mean, it doesn't matter. But oh, uh, I was talking about this in the Slack today. Iron Man is um, his mask is expressive, which is pretty cool. That's something we've been just seeing in Spider Man. Mm. That his mask somewhat morphs to what his expression is underneath. Yeah, and Iron Man's is doing that. It it doesn't change wildly, but like when he's anguished, he looks a little sad. Yeah. <laughs> and when he's feeling determined he looks you know a little more determined that's definitely one of those things that i never questioned like i just i will always accept that at face value of like like not how does his mask change just like oh he's showing emotion like i'll never think twice about that happening with like any character's costume we had a long discussion about that today actually in the slack about really yeah someone talking about that the spider-man game kind of explains why his mask moves and i was like i kind of hate that you know like it's just such a smart design choice yeah like it's almost a necessary design choice for these heroes that are going to be around for so uh-huh. long to like have these that the, their masks uh, show their expressions. Mm-hmm. And I just I don't want it explained. I don't need a reason. Like I, I don't need that spelled out for me. Like I I am I think we should all just collectively hold hands and leap into suspended disbelief on this one because it it's just such a good idea and adding an explanation to it just seems silly and unnecessary. Yeah. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, I saw that. I like that. Uh, we're going to move into Avengers number 25. This one starts out with some Avengers workplace drama, which is a large part of the Avengers now. But the team, now that the team lineup has changed, it's a lot of butting heads between specifically Hawkeye, Captain America, and Quicksilver, and Thor is always absent. <laughs> yeah. He's barely around. I don't think of Thor's even being on the Avengers at this point because he is so caught up in his own adventures. And honestly, like that's for the better. His adventures are pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the thing is that like Captain America acts pretty differently in the Avengers than he does in the rest of the issues or the rest of his solo series. So like it's specifically that Hawkeye gets underneath everyone's skin. Hawkeye has this huge ego. Hawkeye's a jerk, I think. Um, he's really got a lot to prove and it comes. he just, he always like, he acts on it on the impulses in the worst, most annoying ways. So I, I've got a really good page here. I just want to read both, both, uh, or want to read through this panel. Hawkeye's talking to Captain America. If you weren't old enough to be my grandpa, I'd show you who ought to be the ramrod, <laughs> the ramrod of this sewn circle. And for a clue, his initials are Hawkeye. <laughs> and then Captain America says, you penny anti Robin Hood, don't let my age stop you. I could handle 10 like you in a rocking chair. And with that, Captain America immediately thinks to himself, no. I've got to curb my temper. There's nothing to be gained by this. And that's the entire issue is just the two of them butting heads. I actually like this dynamic between Cap and Hawkeye. Um, I think it it spices up the Avengers, you know, in that it gives them this internal combat. We've talked a lot about them being kind of a kind of a boring team unit prior to this yeah. point. And now they're it, like that they didn't have distinct personalities. Yeah, and I think this actually helps give Cap a personality where he kinda he knows not to be like this but he's also like you're you're reminded like he's in a weird position <laughs> as far as his life goes you know like yeah. it is strange to have been transported two decades into the future and hawkeye is just like constantly on his case um to the point where cap you know he just has to keep like like how do you be a leader to someone you don't want to work with you know <laughs> it's like it, it's interesting yeah i i think i would like this a little more if quicksilver was not also exactly the same big didn't have exactly the same big ego which like three 
brash men all butting heads in the exact same way is a little dull. Like, I wish they hadn't had three of the same archetype. Yeah, I don't I don't know why it is that, like, Hawkeye works slightly better for me than Quicksilver. Because yeah. you're right in that Quicksilver's shtick has remained him being the arrogant ego in the room, whereas Hawkeye mm-hmm. has obviously cooled over time. Um, yeah. As he's become more accepted, so yeah, I don't, I don't know what it is exactly. I think I just like his color set better. <laughs> <laughs> the plot of this issue is Doctor Doom wants to defeat the Avengers in order to he, he wants to lure the Avengers to Latveria in order to uh, show the Fantastic Four that he is the superior, he is their superior, and then to lure them there for a fight. Yeah, it's kind of like a like a pre heavyweight fight, you know, like you're building up to the big right. the big one. Yeah, and he does this by sending uh, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver a letter saying that there's a letter posing as one of their relatives, saying that they've got some relatives in Latveria that they should go see. Mm-hmm. While the Avengers are all heading to Latveria to follow up on this, we see Doctor Doom walking through the town, handing out like shiny pennies to little kids. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just very funny and. There's a little bit of people in the background like saying, we must smile when Dr. Doom walk- walks by, but we all hate him and, you know, the, he's really this ruthless leader, but no one dare show it. I, I I don't know if they do this, but, like, I just think it would be such an in- interesting idea to have his entire population love him yeah. instead of have this, like, that there's this resistance movement against him. I think that's so much more interesting. It, it, this is, you know, I'm playing armchair armchair quarterback well we've talked we've talked about that as well because in fantastic four annual number two he does seem a little bit more like the benevolent ruler and and we and people here like him like there are some people here who are genuinely like he's so kind and benevolent i guess i like it being maybe even nuanced in the way that like politics just normally would be where it's like you would have a maybe like you know his polls are like 60 percent approval rating like that <laughs> that split in latveria to me is interesting because then it's yeah. like well majority of people actually like him ruling them and 40 percent are like uh he tortures us behind the scenes this is ridiculous <laughs> yeah well i would like it if like he was just kind to his people period right like that he was just a good mm. leader and the people who don't like him it's for reasons you know they know what he does behind the scenes for like the fantastic four you fight you know he's kind of the super villain yeah. else wise but like now that that complexity will it'll be there in discussions of him but definitely the way i think of it is there's always that undercurrent of like no he does some real evil stuff <laughs> yeah. even to yeah. his own country even though he loves it yeah so uh captain <laughs> So they get to Latveria and are immediately arrested by the secret police, mm-hmm. or just the police, I guess. It's just, they're not secret. Uh, they're arrested by the police for being spies. The Avengers are in jail and Captain America says, like, like, oh man, in all the excitement, we forgot to think who the ruler of Latveria is. Dr. Doom! <laughs> <laughs> like, the the 18-hour transcontinental flight and the the, you know, dozen hours on a train and not one of them stopped to consider they were... <laughs> it's the most like insane contrived plot point yeah well they don't it would have been easy enough for them to almost not even know that fact because remember it wasn't that long ago the fantastic four were surprised by it yeah exactly like it wasn't a so unless the fantastic four just got on like you know the the superhero newsletter 
their fanzine and the Johnny Storm's handing out, right? The, the, the slack that the Fantastic Four run. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Um, maybe that's where they got the info from, or do made his presence known at that Lamvarian embassy moment. Somehow, somehow this is out there now. I guess everybody knows. Yeah, so basically the Avengers are in jail. They break out. They go to fight Doctor Doom, who pulls a big lever, and it uh, it envelops all of that area in this huge dome, mm-hmm. right? So the entire country is covered by a dome, kind of like under the dome the stephen king book i was thinking battle dome or thunder dome. Well, i was thinking broke the simpsons did it before under the dome woke avengers number 25 did it before under the dome <laughs> yeah they fight dr doom they can't get the dome down the fantastic four find <laughs> in the most like useless little side plot thread the fantastic four find out that the avengers are being held prisoner in latveria and they all hop on their fantastic jet I don't know if that's a thing. Yeah. And go to take off. They request clearance to take off from Washington, D.C., who rejects it. And they go to D.C. to find out that because Latveria is its own country and they're a friendly nation that they can't bust in because it would cause a big diplomatic crisis, blah, blah, blah. And then we don't see the Fantastic Four again. It's like a completely useless little side plot. There's one really funny moment where they go to D.C. to, <laughs> to like to confront the uh i don't know secretary of state or something yeah and ben Grimm, in his usual way just burst through the door turning it into splinters and as he's doing it uh reed richard says we'll pay for that door gentlemen but we want some answers which i feel like is a, a very rehearsed uh <laughs> they must like, pay for so many doors yeah it's got to be absurd right that's something that reed richards has had to say many times like he, he's very used to saying that yeah. phrase like bef- before the, the splinters have even hit the ground he's already <laughs> reassuring people like well, we'll pay for that it'd be funny to see him start a conversation with somebody like that you know and say we'll pay for the door and they're like what are you talking about and then he looks around and realizes ben didn't actually <laughs> smash it this time <laughs> and, and ben is you know with two fingers slowly turning the door knob. <laughs> Uh, back in that area, the Avengers fight Doctor Doom a bunch, and then this time they just win. Not much else changes. Uh, I think Scarlet Witch gets to the lever that takes down the the dome and ruins all the machinery, uh, and the Avengers leave Latveria. That's the whole issue. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a Marvel trope throughout the decade that everyone gets a chance to fight Doom. Like yeah, yeah of... Spider Man got to fight him in like number three or something. Issue five, yeah, Amazing Spider Man number five is a um is a Doctor Doom fight. So wild that you can pull those like right off the top of your head. Oh, <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, no, any uh any early Spidey, I'm probably pretty on top of. But uh, yeah, it's like basically if you're a Marvel character and you haven't fought Doctor Doom yet, like get on it, man. Like you're yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. a bum. So this 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 brings up. This brings up something about Marvel Comics at this point, where we're we're getting into some like really cool, influential stuff, stuff that like ripples through modern day Marvel and that will stick around. But I think these these comics bring in interesting ideas that someone else will take and flesh out into something like yeah. really cool. Yeah. Right? Like I feel like we're gonna see this over and over and over again. Like Galactus, uh Black Panther, Daredevil, the X-Men. Um, we're about to talk about ego, the living planet. Actually, egos, egos, okay. egos, pre good. But yeah, but um, I mean, that's what this decade is, though. That's what this decade is. It's here's the idea, here's the groundwork, right. and now, and that, like that's I, that's what I like about comics, like that, like big two comics in particular. You know, the superhero genre is that there's this legacy that you can pick up and run with decades later, and these are the templates. 
You know what I mean? And sometimes they're really good and sometimes they're just a template. It's like a first draft, but it gets, there's always opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, well, I, the thing is like, which ones are really good? Because I, I think there's very few, like, I, I like these, I'm enjoying these, but like a lot of it isn't enjoying them. When I think of how cool and big these ideas are, I'm not thinking about Stanley and Kirby or whoever's drawing being the ones who like made them really cool. The, the few exceptions I can think of are like, I like some Spider-Man. I think Spider-Man is doing some pretty good, interesting stuff. That one issue of Fantastic Four, This Man, This Monster, that's like one of the few standalone Fantastic Four that I'm like, this is just a great Fantastic Four story mm-hmm. that stacks up against anything that they would be telling in the modern age. Yeah. Right? Like, as this evolves and grows up. Yeah, I, I just, I, I think that's interesting to think about that, like, you're right, template is a good word. So, are we, okay, we're done with 25, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm all, I, okay. All right, so Avengers number 29 is the next Avengers issue we read. This is a Stan Lee, Don Heck, Frank Giacoya, and Sam Rosen joint. Uh, we get Hank, a.k.a. Hank Pym, a.k.a. the new Goliath. We get his new costume, and Henry is, he's in a state. Uh, he is unconscious from being big for too long. <laughs> if you've been big for longer than four hours, call your doctor because Hank has been very large for a very long time. Um, what, what do you think about this new costume? So it, the Goliath costume is blue and yellow. Uh, as a huge fan of blue and yellow in almost any combination, I love it. I, I like it more than his classic red and black, I'll be honest. We have such different aesthetics for these superheroes. Cause I, I, my note just says, Goliath looks ridiculous. <laughs> like a dad who just discovered Oakley sunglasses. <laughs> Here's the thing. If I could put some sunglasses on and that Goliath costume and not have anyone judge me, I would absolutely <laughs> do he that. Really, he really just looks like a, a dad who's going through a, a midlife crisis. And like... A Hank's, oh, Hank is very daddish. Yeah. Yeah. Those the sunglasses that are built in the costume are so dumb. <laughs> um. But they keep his eyes protected. Okay, so the doctor comes and says Hank is going to be okay. But he, but he, okay, so he's going to survive, but, there's a but, he has to be 10 feet tall. If he reduces, he'll be sick. If he goes any taller, he will be oh my God, it, even more sick. Hank says, 10 feet tall. I'm doomed to spend the rest of my life in a world that's too small for me. <laughs> I really like the arbitrariness of... 10 feet because it's so it's like just tall enough to be absurd but not yeah, he, a giant you know he can still fit in most rooms like he can sit on most chairs so i'll skip ahead the very last panel is one of my favorites of all of 1966 oh I, I, and it's the avengers <laughs> all preparing to like take a cab home and hank's sadly walking away in the background saying i guess i'll walk i wouldn't fit in the car anyway it is the saddest Uber ride chair I've ever seen. Down. It's it's incredible. I'll be all right. You go ahead. I'll catch up later. I wouldn't fit in the car anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Oh, it's great. Okay, so the so that's what's going on with, with good old Goliath. The crux of the issue is we cut to a brainwashed Black Widow who is being um, controlled by her sort of, a, what do you call them, Russian, I don't know, runners? Handlers. Handlers, there you go. That's a better word. Um, Hawkeye learns through, through this organization's, you know, desires, basically that Black Widow's in the States. He tracks her down because again, remember Hawkeye is hopelessly in love with the Black Widow. 
Um, if we remember from his debut when they kind of team up, he falls for her instantly. And, and Black is Widow immediately willing to murder for her. Yes, he is willing to do terrible, terrible things for Natasha. And uh, the Black Widow surprises him by showing him that their romantic um, uh, get-together includes also the Swordsman and Power Man, a.k.a. Wonder Man, a.k.a. Simon well, well, Williams. Uh, no, 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 no. Oh, am I about to hand down a lesson to the Marvel the Marvel Master? <laughs> you might be. Is this not Wonder Man? No, Wonder Man at this point is dead. Uh, He's always because, dead. Uh, yeah, I guess like... He came back, okay. right? All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to hit this so quick. Baron Zemo had some equipment in South America that he used to superpower some guy mm-hmm. into Wonder Man, who's basically kind of like Superman levels of strength. And he fought the Avengers, but then the guy got a conscience and he fought Baron Zemo for the Avengers, and then he died. Mm-hmm. Wonder Man's gone. Power Man is a completely separate guy who then went to South America to find this equipment, and the Enchantress helped run the equipment and turn him into Power Man, basically with the same super strength. Uh, and he's just a different guy. That I genuinely did so, not know that. Plus one, Zach. Probably because and you're off the podcast, Dave. Yeah, yeah. Bring on a new <laughs> a new host. Um, honestly, I just assumed it was Wonder Man because they're the same exact guy. There's actually a really funny moment when uh when Enchantress like he he walks out of the machine to get his Power Man powers. Yeah, and he says like, oh, just don't give me a stupid name like Wonder Man, and she says. Oh, yeah, of course not. You'll be Power Man. And it's done totally straight-faced. And he's like, yeah, that's the ticket. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's, so, it's so dumb. He's yeah. completely generic. Okay. It, the sword, the Swordsman is a little more interesting. Yeah, the Swordsman's a little better. I mean, so here's the thing is he's not even he's not even the good Power Man. That, of course, is Luke Cage. <laughs> oh, so. right. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you Google this, you'll get the other one. Yeah. Uh, okay. Good, good context there. I mean, it's not. It's really dull, but <clears> I was just glad to have... <laughs> something to to brag about no i mean i i 100 thought this was just wonder man returned as power man i guess for power sets purposes it basically is the same they're literally identical um and since we're not going to talk about wonder man very much as we go through this now you got some some wonder man info so there you go uh there's a really nutty scene in this where the wasp uh is flying for help Oh, this this was the best part of the whole issue. It's, this was like it's genuinely incredible. It was fun and funny. Yeah, so like the Avengers squad is basically they're like trying to track down Hawkeye, and the Wasp is flying away to try to get you know some backup. And as she's flying away from the scene, uh, she is taken out by the supervillain known as completely normal bird. <laughs> it's just a bird. It's well, oh, she, it's so she, good. She, like she's pursued by it in the air. And then she has to, like, get even smaller to zip through its beak as it tries to bite her. Yeah. And then eventually she clings to its feathers until it lands on a branch, at which point she climbs off and grows super big. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the bird gets freaked out, and she apologizes to the bird for, <laughs> for terrifying it. Yeah. And then th- this this part, next part made me laugh out loud. Oh, I was going to let you <laughs> fill it in if you remember. Oh, no, I don't remember it clearly enough. She, so she's uh, she gets this. Oh, geez. Did she fall out of a tree? Yeah, the branch snaps. <laughs> the branch snaps underneath her. She falls out of the tree and is knocked unconscious, and that's the last of we see. <laughs> like it's a horrible she, issue. She's for on Jen, her way yeah. to follow. She's on her way to follow Hawkeye to keep tabs on him, and she's taken out by falling out of a tree. Yeah, <laughs> even though she has wings. I would prefer this all happened to Hank, but that said, it's it's very funny. I. It's a really good. Do you think it knows version. it's funny? I don't know. I I 
don't know if it was... I mean, like, it's definitely supposed to be a little whimsical that, like, yeah. a bird's going on, but I don't know if the joke of, like, that she just falls out of a tree and is knocked unconscious and that's why she's not there Yeah, is supposed to be a joke or if that's just, like... Part of me thinks that they would never do this to Hawkeye or Captain America or any of the male superheroes. Right. Which, like, is a little... Ugh, but, uh, it, yeah, it's that, pretty funny. That's the piece I like a little less now. Um, so anyway, the Swordsman and Power Man, a.k.a. not Wonder Man, they attack and capture Captain America in Avengers Mansion. Um, and yet another example of Avengers Mansion needing some improved security. Uh, basically... Through this, we get just a sequence of events where everyone's trying to rescue everyone. Boring. Boring. Yeah, it's not super fun. <laughs> I, um, I, I went through this so quick. It's a bunch of fighting that eventually they win. <laughs> yeah, it, a bunch of fighting. Eventually, Goliath... Actually, the reason they win is Goliath shows up and mm, is able to right, right. take down everyone. The kind of core Avengers roster, which we just saw beat Doctor Doom, uh, which is kind of gets under my skin. <laughs> um, Goliath has to show up and rescue them. And then we get that truly incredible... Um, Goliath getting sad about not being able to fit in the cab scene. And that's Avengers yep, number yeah. 29. So covering Avengers at this point in 66, it really what we're trying to do is just like, hey, here's a taste of this new lineup. Uh, again, yeah. Avengers is not one of my favorite books from this time period. Um, honestly, not even close until we get some some new creative talent on the team. But yeah. it, it is interesting to see this lineup because like it's uh, it's a strange change from how how strong they started. Yeah. So we, we've been on a slight downward slope with Avengers, and now we're going to skyrocket back to the top with yeah. Amazing Spider-Man number 39. So we've got the Green Goblin in his lair prepping to... His big plan is to reveal Spider-Man's ID. He's going to find out who Spider-Man is and reveal it to the world. And he's he's preparing all of his, uh, his Green Goblin tools, whatever. He's got his glider. He's got his, his pumpkin bombs. This is the first time we've seen the pumpkin bombs. I'm not sure. Could be. Yeah, I don't know. First time we've seen them, I think. Yeah. At least. Um, I don't know why I haven't noticed this before, but, like, the Green Goblin's whole thing is, like, Halloween. Yeah. Right? But but in a way that... It's weird, because that's his whole theming, but then he himself is not, like, personality-wise, like, I'm a spooky villain. He just uses Halloween... He uses the Halloween aesthetic, Right, he has like he has little bombs that are shaped like uh, cartoon ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Later, he throws bats out and pumpkins. But it's weird because when you think of Green Goblin, you don't think it's Halloween, right? Yeah, but... I I think they explain in these issues even like why that costume because it is kind of an odd. It is one of those odd things like Doctor Octopus like doesn't act like an octopus with one one, one notable exception. exception. <laughs> 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 but like often their names don't don't really add up to like how they behave or act or but green goblin is like well why did why is he even dressing up like that like is this individual really into halloween and he's not it's just sort of around it's just like it's just his aesthetic there. yeah yeah i mean it works it's good it's like, a good design I, I, it's just not something he's into even it's interesting enough and like it looks good enough and it's weird enough that i don't know it just kind of works for me despite it never quite adding up yeah um so we cut to uh peter parker at college and he's being a little standoffish because uh, Aunt May, Aunt May's doctor is telling Peter Parker that Aunt May is, she's out of trouble uh, health-wise, but any any kind of trauma or stress could put her right back uh, in the hospital. She, she's in danger again. If he does anything, he'll stress her out. So he, he's doing the same thing where he's just like, he's worried about Aunt May, and so he's being kind of a jerk to people by yeah. literally just ignoring them. We see... Harry Osborn getting dropped off at school by his father in his convertible, I think. 
and his father's kind of a jerk to him. He looks just like him. He's got that same weird hair. Mm-hmm. The Nor- Norman Osborn. It is genetic, and, yes. Yeah, this reminded me, I went back and watched it on YouTube, the, the original Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. The first time we see Norman Osborn is him dropping his son off at school the same way. Yeah, it sets up their very contentious relationship where you see Harry yeah. desperately seeking his father's approval and, of course, getting none of it. Um, yeah. Norman's kind of a jerk. And it is – it's one of the – it's actually – no, it's the early beginnings of Harry and Pete being friends. Um, oh, they hate each other up to this point. Right. And then Harry Osborne <laughs> – Harry Osborne is doing the same thing that Peter Parker is doing. Like he's upset that his father was so – cold to him mm-hmm. so he's walking around campus sulking and ignoring everybody and mm-hmm. i think like flash thompson and gwen stacy are like it's contagious yeah uh, right but in uh in in their lab peter parker realizes something's up and like asks him what's going on and the two of them connect over well problems with their parents or <laughs> complete lack of parents in yeah. Peter parker's situation and it, it, that's kind of a fun scene the two of them like connecting over this and then everybody else remarking upon how how odd it is that these two are having a having a moment. Yeah, it's it's an important moment for Pete to actually finally like start befriending some of the bullying groups that have been, yeah. you know, kind of a thorn in his side. Um, you know, not I don't want to say not undeservedly because bullying is never deserved, but like he's not been great as far as like just being a social person <laughs> to this point either. Gwen Stacy is like over the moon that Peter Parker is being friendly. Again. Yeah, she's just drooling over him at this point. She's got she's cutting him so much slack yeah at this point just yeah. because he's apparently just the best looking guy she's ever seen um i do want to mention here well he's not as husky as flash thompson who is who is um <laughs> i do i do want to mention here they're the kind of the next scenes are uh, green goblin chasing down spider-man and i thought it was really wild that the goblin could um he could describe spider sense he says to pete at one point or spidey i should say um like you know your spider senses or no he develops a gizmo is that what it is he he okay so he basically he sends a bunch of henchmen to cause some trouble spider-man gets in the middle of it starts fighting these guys and one of them blasts some gas into spider-man's face that will dull his spider sense and green goblin is like specifically oh this will dull his spider sense so he won't see me how does he know how does i don't know know. that That is i don't think he's the i don't think he's the first villain to be aware of spider-man spider sense i mean the one thing kind of like yeah the one thing i could think of is spidey's always talking and he has probably literally <laughs> said in fights like good thing i have my spider sense today so maybe they're just like yeah he can dodge bullets because he knows where they're going to be because this weird spider sense thing now it's crazy <laughs> that you could design something just to develop a gas that, that nullifies it yeah. yeah yeah well you know that's funny that you say that about him overhearing peter parker talking because so basically uh spider-man gets out of this fight he switches in an alleyway, he changes back into his civilian clothes, and Green Goblin's just hovering behind him in an alley. He walks into the Daily Bugle uh, for his job, comes out, and the Green Goblin says, Peter Parker, so that's his name. I just heard him say it out loud. Yeah. <laughs> Which again, just Peter Parker's walking down the street saying, like, things are really turning around for Peter Parker. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that. Again, like, acknowledgement that this monologuing is really happening yeah. in the in the out loud i did note there as well though that like i don't i don't think we've had a ton of comics to date that really are like good secret identity being threatened type stories and this one does it so well um it's happening a little bit with iron man actually this year yeah but uh but it's always a thing they're protecting yeah and like we talked about how literally everyone has a secret identity forever in comics it's building up an iron man that he might have to reveal his secret identity Mm -hmm. i mean like it's it's under threat 
This yeah, year, but, but but this is such like uh you know I'm gonna find it out and you're going to you're, everyone you know is going to suffer because of right. it you know really played out in a way that I don't think has happened um super often yeah yeah oh uh, wh- one thing that bears no importance on the plot and I I don't know why it's even here is that Peter Parker is sick for the first half of this issue which m- mainly is noteworthy because he walks around and he drops all of his ends in words which I forgot that's why he was sick so he just says stuff like. I didn't remember that. Yeah, because it doesn't come into play at all. It has no bearing on the plot, oh. really. But he says stuff like, nothing as satisfying as the simple life. <laughs> like, <laughs> they keep dropping the ends, like, nothing is satisfying. Like, and uh, and I was like, what? what is he doing? Is this, like, new teen slang that Stan Lee just doesn't understand? And then I realized it's because he's sick. He's sick. And, like, it's supposed to be nothing. Oh, yeah. Um, so the Green Goblin trails him back to his house. And in this really cool scene, confronts Peter Parker right in front of his own house while he's out of costume. And Peter Parker's terrified that Aunt May inside is going to hear this fight and, you know, it's going to set off her faulty heart. We don't really know what's wrong with Aunt May. But... A lot of things. A lot of things are wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just like a, a general It's It's tough being the oldest woman alive, I think, Yeah, uh, in a lot of ways. I do love, you know, we talked about John Romita jumping on the book here. And these fight scenes of Pete, you know, in his street clothes, basically, with the Spidey costume underneath, needing to fight the yeah. goblin. And just, like, you can just feel it. They don't even have to describe it. Like, what if somebody's watching out of window? You know, like, that tension is just yeah. right there. It's really well done. Yeah. And uh, at one point, there's a funny line here. Where Green Goblin's just having, like, so much fun doing this. Yeah. He throws one of his little ghostly bombs at him and says, sings a song. And it's fun. The inking actually kind of shows it that it's in a sing-songy voice. Mm-hmm. Says, here's a present, little man. Try to catch it if you can. Which just reminded me of uh, Jay and Silent Bob. No, not a, not a Jay and Silent Bob guy. 15 bucks, little man. Put the in my hand. If that money doesn't show, then you owe me, owe me, owe. You know that, you know that song? Nope. <laughs> Dave is just, sti- he's just staring at me so hard. <laughs> I, you're going to lose me. You're going to lose me on any Kevin Smith uh any Kevin Smith material. I don't think I've ever seen a movie of his. It's from Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which is a terrible movie that I saw like 15 years ago. And I couldn't tell you a thing about except for that one little song except that you remember been stuck song. in my head since I saw it. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's him selling weed in front of a convenience store. Of course. Um, he, uh, so eventually this fight plays out with the Green Goblin defeats Spider-Man and ties him up and just drags him off behind his glider. There's so much of this that, like, got pulled in. This specific issue got pulled into the Sam Raimi Raimi Spider-Man. Yeah. Like, the shots of him getting dragged behind the Green Goblin's glider, I'm pretty sure, like, really visually quoted in that movie. Yeah, and it is interesting to me, like, they... So you end the Steve Ditko era, you bring on the new team of John Romita with Lee, and they immediately go into what is one of the biggest Spider-Man stories of all time. Like, they do not beat around the bush. it feels like a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. This does not feel like your normal Spider-Man story. Like, he just knows who he is now. Yeah. And, it, yeah, it's exciting. It's a good story. Yeah, and the issue ends with uh, Green Goblin has oh, Peter right. Parker right where he wants him. He's got him all tied up. And he reveals to Spidey that he is, in fact, Norman Osborn. Because he's so the sure Goblin. that Spider-Man is, you know, yeah, doomed he's got and him. won't escape. He knows yeah. this is the end, so he tells him who he is. And, again, like, remember, this is a what 20 plus issue reveal now at this point like people have been wondering for years so this is a big big reveal i like this reveal the thing is that they also just introduced norman osborne in this issue no no we've (laughs) seen him like 
What? We've seen them before, I think. Have we? I'm not sure if that's... At least we haven't, like, reading the My Marvelous Year Club. I don't think he's... Maybe, they, they I'm, kinda... maybe I'm mixing... I've got some story appearances in my head that I'm picturing, but I might be jumping ahead in my mind now that I think about it. That's an interesting question. Give, I'll have to look at that, because I, I don't actually know offhand now. Here, give me give me 10 seconds. I'll find yeah. out for us. Itsy bitsy spider went up the water spout. Down came the goblin and took the spider out. <laughs> First appearance as Green Goblin, number 14. Oh, yeah, no, Spider-Man 23. So, okay, he's been around. All right. Okay, um, yeah, I, I thought he'd popped in here and there, because I, I think you get some things where he's like... Wait, no, I well, we're putting this out there, like, it's... I don't think we... They say we do, but, like, when I go to that page, there's nothing about Norman Osborn in number 23. Anyway, he's no, been No, the around. first thing you read online is true. <laughs> it's gotta be. It proved me yeah, right, so yeah. I, I don't doubt it for a second. Um, oh, no, for the first time, he's. it is an unnamed, non-speaking appearance as another member of JJJ's Midtown Business Executive Clubs. That's the first time we see him, yeah. and then this is the real first issue of him. Yeah, no, he's very memorable. Which, again, is weird. Like, it's not a big twist because it's like, oh, the guy who got introduced this issue, he's the guy, you know. So, so that's what actually what I wrote down was, like, it's kind of impossible to separate the Green Goblin identity from what it would become. Like, we know right. what Norman's going to become to the Spidey mythos, like, just across right, right, media right. in general. It's very difficult to think of it as a who's it going to be reveal. I think to your right. point, if you think about just these first issues that we've read to date, it is a little bit like, oh, they just, like, pulled this guy that was barely in the movie, you know, in as the murderer. Like, it doesn't it doesn't resonate yeah. the same way that, like, J. Jonah James. You know what I mean? Like, somebody who's <laughs> right, been a real exactly. character. Or Frederick Foswell or that Ned make, Leeds. Yeah, right, right. Like, right. It would be a twist, right? Oh, we know this guy. We didn't suspect him. Rather that, than, yo, Betty would have been good. B- Betty would have been great. That would, oh, have been, that would have been a cool reveal. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Would have changed decades of everything about Spidey, but... <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that takes us straight into Amazing Spider-Man number 40. This is Stan Lee, John Romita, Mickey DeMio on inks, and Sam Rosen on letters. We've got Spidey tied up, and he realizes really his only opportunity here is to try and break his his bonds. He's going to have to keep Storm and Norman talking. So Norman Osborn monologues his origin. <laughs> you don't call him Storm and Norman? Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So he tells him, you know, he's been a single dad to Harry and simultaneously a ruthless corporate tycoon. He casts himself as he's telling the story as the hero for sure. Mm-hmm. Like you see, you see him behaving badly in his own origin where he's like, you know, being a jerk to Harry and that sort of thing. But he's also like, I did it for him. Everything I did. The was... narration says no one could say I wasn't a perfect dad yeah. while like while the story shows that he's being kind of a jerk. <laughs> right, right. So you get the sense of him like. He clearly thinks he's doing the right thing, but is obviously has a very slanted uh, perspective on the way things should be. And he's he's like he's talking to himself, which is kind of interesting. Like he's having this back and forth with himself, kind of like that Gollum Smeagol thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> Where one side of him is like, oh, he knows Harry. This isn't how it was supposed to go down. Don't worry. We'll take care of him. He'll be gone. And like he's reassuring himself and then worrying. And then literally, again, just like that really Sam cool Ramey scene. scene. Yeah. Right, with him in the mirror, talking to himself. Yeah. this I feel like this is the first time we've seen real psychosis in the Marvel Universe. Right, Like, you kind of have this generally, like, you want to take over the world, you're insane. 
thing, but not this, like, it's really just baked into the character that they're having, you know, like a mental breakdown and they're having a distorted view of what's happening. Well, I call it too, like, the other thing that's interesting about Norman is he, he's like a functioning, um, what's the word? Like functioning mentally ill <laughs> villain where he <laughs> has a place in business and in the world. Right. Like he, yeah, I guess successful he has a secret man. identity um, that he is maintaining successfully while doing yeah. all these goblin activities, um, which, which is as opposed to like a lot of the Spidey's rogues gallery, they are nothing but criminals because right. that is like Spidey beats him up and they go to jail. Whereas goblin hasn't had that experience. So nobody knows who he is. Um, so yeah, he basically, he realized that there was this green chemical explosion. It impacted his brain. Um, a la Dr. Octopus, you know, where you sort of get the sense right. of like, yeah. they probably were different. Uh, and then this, this transformation happened again. It's the reverse superhero origin. Um, Captain or <laughs> Captain America shows up. <laughs> I'm like, started saying, I'm like, no, I don't think he's in this. No, there's a caption on page 10, um, calling out the, plot recap pages and it's really interesting goblin puts this device on his head that allows him to relive the battles he's had with spideys but all it is is an in-issue excuse to literally do like a continuity recap of like yeah. with captions in amazing spider-man number 14 you fought me and the enforcers and it's not a good read but i kind of like it as a catch no i skim i skim through it i didn't read any of it well, I, I, just, I saw right through it. It was just like, oh, this is filler. Yeah, I just obviously as somebody who's like interested in in connecting dots in continuity and in making things more accessible to readers. I like that Marvel here was like, we're on issue 40. If somebody picked up issue 39 even as their first, yeah. here are the ones that explain what happened in the past. And sure. I don't know how the heck you even track those down in 1966, but they, they give you the option of where you would find them. Right, so, yeah. Um, so yeah, he's, he's again, like he's integrating continuity and their history together, Pete stalling him. And, uh, it, it, it kind of felt too, like in this issue, like Pete stalling him, but also Stan and John are stalling. Like they don't have a lot to do in this issue. Yeah. Yeah. The issue feels like, like stalling, I guess. Yeah. And that's what is happening. <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. Cause I kind of generally like what happens in this issue, but it could have happened in half the time. Yes. And so once, once Pete finally breaks out of his bonds, the battle begins there's really good action throughout. Um, I, I like, you know, so there's this whole pretty good fight scene between them. It kind of ends with the building, like, burning. And uh, I really like the trope that we haven't seen a ton of, but that will continue, of Spider-Man rescuing the villain that he just fought. So, like, the villain's right. lying unconscious in a burning building, in this case, the Green Goblin. And he just basically threatened to ruin Spider-Man's life, kill everyone he knows, and uh, and Spidey saves his life in response to that. Yeah, and... and- What's really interesting, I think what, like, has big plot ramifications is that, uh, well, okay, I said what's really interesting. What's really ridiculous is that as this building collapses around them, Norman Osborn sustains a head injury and forgets who, forgets everything he just learned. So basically, you know, real convenient, he just learned who Peter Parker, or he just learned who Spider-Man is, and now he's immediately forgetting it, and he has amnesia. It's a very specific amnesia. I think it's like three years. So it's basically like goes back to yeah. the start of the chemical explosion. Yeah, um, so he doesn't remember being Green Goblin. And this, I think, is actually interesting in that Peter Parker decides that he's going to hide the fact that Norman Osborn is Green Goblin. So he takes his costume off, he burns his mask. There's this really cool shot of the Green Goblin's mask going up in flames, and it looks like the mask itself is kind of like screaming in pain. Dripping and melting, yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's cool. 
But I think that's a really interesting idea that he is going to basically like cover up the fact that Norman Osborn was the Green Goblin and put him out in the world, not knowing that Norman is not going to know what he did or what he was. You know, it's an interesting decision too, because when I think about that decision, it's often with the, you know, the hindsight of like, well, he's Harry's friend and he does it for him, but that's not true here. I mean, we just saw the beginnings of that friendship start. Uh, Oh, it's funny because when he first gets tied up, the very first thing he says to the Green Goblin in this issue is Norman Osborn. Well, with a son like Harry, I'm not surprised. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> he immediately puts Harry on blast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first thing he like does. they're not on great terms by any means. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it is. It's a curious decision. <laughs> yeah. I think, but yeah, definitely a big I, one. I think it's interesting, and I think it has like it has. I think it sets up some really cool tension moving forward. Yes. So maybe, maybe just plot wise, it's an interesting decision. Yes, definitely. So that that marks the end of Amazing Spider-Man number forty. Um, I do. I want to throw in my obligatory read every Spidey issue here. Yeah. With yeah, the selling dead. point that forty one <laughs> is the introduction of the Rhino, and if that's not interesting enough to you, he runs from Mexico through border security to New York to fight spider-man he does that in this issue it's awesome gonna, check it out i'm gonna be putting that one in extra issues that's already on the list nice so. excellent all right so finally we're gonna move into three thor issues and i'm probably gonna treat these as just one big issue yeah uh 131 132 133 and so a little background because this one starts out with hercules and thor emerging from uh from the underworld the greek underworld where hercules was trapped as the, the Hades had tricked him into taking his spot as ruler of the underworld, uh, and Thor went down to like be his champion and fight for him and free him. So that's what we're coming out of. The other thing that's going on is Jane Foster has had this roommate named Tana Niles, who basically bewitched her. She's more than meets the eye. She bewitched her to leave, and basically, like, she just kind of told her to, to leave and walk away. So Jane Foster has just like walked out of the building and got on a bus and now is on a plane trying to like leave as far as possible, basically. So that Thor won't be able to find her. We see that Tana Niles, this woman who put a spell on Jane Foster, she reveals her true identity, not as a human, but as a colonizer. Yes. Which is a race of aliens that looks... It's just wild how dumb they look. They have her big head heads. Just, that's pretty much it. Her head gets so big. Her face looks like uh, if you made a face out of pizza dough and then just stretched it. Mm, you know, over pizza. Like three three times bigger her, her helmet has like weird baby hair it's kind of like fk twigs like baby hair design on it like yeah. that, that's a that's a reference for two listeners maybe but like <laughs> <laughs> you underestimate it, our audience yeah maybe uh it's it's just the it's the dumbest weirdest design yeah not a, not a big colonizer guy i think they are they play a big they role come in this back? uh well i mean they play a big role in this as like alien space free things i don't think of them as like big time cosmic players you know in the marvel cosmic scene um they're really they're kind of just a bridge here to get thor to the good stuff yeah yeah so basically they're a race of aliens that have like maximum density so they are pretty invulnerable and they're colonizing different planets by putting this space lock on them which basically puts a big ray around earth so that they can move it as they want and that's the big threat is she could throw the earth into the sun if she wanted um i do like the idea of that this is just a big bureaucracy to her like, she calls back home and is like, 
I discovered this planet. Does anyone else have dibs on it? And they're like, let us check our records. Yeah. Nope, you're clear to colonize. And like, you know what it reminds me of is uh, I've been reading uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy at, at night yeah. to my son. And uh, it, it reminds me a lot of early in that book, the Vogons show up to create a highway through, through right. Earth, basically. Yes. And uh, it just, it has that same kind of feel to me of like almost whimsical, like alien takeover of yeah. Earth. Yeah, it's kind of funny. It, isn't your son like one years old? Uh, he's, he's coming up. <laughs> so we read very adult books uh, before it's bed just, because just you to, realize they're just for me and my wife. Right. Yeah. It's an excuse to get some adult reading in and yeah, yeah. he just hears your voice. Yeah. But okay. hey, for uh, for a Patreon bonus, we might want to do my uh, seven book read through of Harry Potter complete with voices. So if you want to <laughs> if you want to know what I sound like is Hagrid, uh, put in a request for the, the Q&A between Zach and I. I'll back us to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, back in Asgard, Thor doesn't know about any of this happening yet. He goes to Odin, who's playing chess on the coolest chessboard, ch- chessboard on the coolest chessboard, and <laughs> Odin like eventually tears himself away from his game. And Thor asks permission to marry Jane Foster, and Odin, after like fifty issues of, he's just been furious about Thor loving Jane Foster. He finally relents and gives in and tells him like, okay fine like bring her here so thor goes back to earth he finds that jane foster is missing the colonizers are in her place and they defeat him because they're these super strong weirdos they throw him on their ship to go to rigel which is their planet yes um and that's basically it yeah the issue ends <laughs> like the issue, the issue ends with thor breaking free on the spaceship on the way to rigel right and it, it kind of has one of those like if this be my destiny moments where he just pulls his willpower together to defeat these just to get out of aliens. get out of his bounds yeah. right totally yeah. so uh yeah so issue 132 is called where gods may fear to tread and this is we get all that build up to get us to thorn space um traveling with the uh, with the regalians it opens uh with a story by stanley jack kirby vince coletta sam rosen and uh irving forbush credited with alien translations which I appreciate. <laughs> um, so uh, we get a, you know Thor on the ship and the colonizing regalians. They uh, they're fighting him. They're trying to stop him. So they sick one of their indestructibles on the God of Thunder, and he beats it up pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's useless. <laughs> Not as indestructible as you would have thought. Um, the basically like basically from here, the colonizers are intimidated by Thor. They show him uh, basically what it is that is causing them. Uh, uh, you know, anxiety. <laughs> it's this thing, <laughs> the Black Galaxy. Um, basically, from there, Thor, he kind of like semi-teams up with him. There's actually a really cool shot of the Black Galaxy coming upon a huge colonizer ship and tearing it to pieces, which it's a great splash page. Yeah, for sure. So uh, basically, Thor's like, all right, if I help you explore this Black Galaxy, you know, maybe we can settle our differences. Here we get the Regalian set him up with a recorder, which is a a cosmic entity. Eh, that's the wrong word. A cosmic character that uh, I quite like. Yeah, I actually remember him from later, weirdly enough. <laughs> yeah, the recorder will be a little bit recurring. Um, the recorder, it's in the name. Their whole deal is like it's kind of this android that is there to record the events and take on data. Sometimes they take on uh, kind of a personality of their own, maybe a la like, I don't know, like data on next generation or something. Not quite yeah. that fun, but yeah, he's, he's got this interesting, there's an interesting idea where he talks about the recording is not just like video and sound. He's recording like all senses, which I think is 
kind of a cool idea that they don't do anything with, but you know that, that he's re- recording in the entire sensory, like a, a plethora of sense inputs. Yeah, it's it's an interesting idea, I think certainly. Um, but basically, Thor and the recorder they travel into the Black Galaxy, and this leads to one of my favorite final splash pages uh, of Ooh, this yeah. era. You get the splash of Ego, the Living Planet, waiting for Thor to arrive in issue 133. Yeah, really cool. There's a a couple little side plots that are happening throughout this that I actually think help really pace out this issue, Uh which is we cut back to Earth with Tana Niles, and she's walking around like ready to colonize this planet, thinking that at any moment now that the space lock is going to come and set over Earth and it's going to be hers. So she's walking around, (laughs) she goes up to a cop and like, asks you know starts saying i'm the new ruler of this earth take me to your leader and he's like oh right this way your majesty and he opens up the back of the cop car like thinking to himself like oh we get all types here on the street yeah (laughs) and right you just get this series of scenes of her walking around very seriously demanding like take me to the the head of the united nations and he's like you know oh we'll roll out the red carpet thinking he's just dealing with uh you know a crazy person Mm. it's fun and like it kind of breaks up the very serious stuff that's happening with thor because kind of i don't know you just have these light-hearted scenes yeah there's also this weird scene of jane foster on a plane with this bald guy who's got the tiniest little face who's like really interested in her uh he actually reminds me a little bit of uh varus from game of thrones the eunuch um, yes yeah kind of got that sure. vibe to him yeah, yeah, but yeah, he will be totally. he's he's instantly notable where you're like oh this this is going to be somebody jane's not sitting next to him by accident yeah except that doesn't come into play until the next issue where uh okay so thor is thor goes with the recorder into this black galaxy and he he lands on ego the living planet and we get this two-page spread which we haven't had many two-page spreads before i don't know if we've had any period um but that's this an interesting is, this thought. Is it is uncommon. Beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful stuff. I I would hang a print of this on my wall. These are some of my favorite Kirby. I, Kirby, we talk about him. I love him on Fantastic Four. I mean, I think his Thor stuff is some of the coolest. It's very, his Thor very stuff fun. is is my favorite. I like I like it like miles more than Fantastic Four, especially yeah. sixty five. Like this is this is my normal reminder in 1965 start reading every thor issue yeah like, i actually think these three are not quite as indicative of the quality of thor as, as some other stuff but Interesting. like thor's been really good like 1965 thor i think is like some of the best stuff we've seen in marvel so far yeah anyway ego is this huge living planet he's got biomolecules that can adapt and reform in any shape if you've seen guardians of the galaxy 2 it's kind of spot on to that like mm-hmm. He can just, he's the planet, and he can form the planet to be anything he wants. He can form, like, a small human identity to walk around the planet, but that's not really him. That's just a, a avatar for him. You do get some of Kirby, too, like, showing off his powers. I always think of it as, like, almost like one-upping Ditko in his Doctor Strange dimensions, where he's like, look yeah. what I can do. You know, like, just showing off how Ego can manipulate the, the fabric of the ground that are standing on. Yeah, yeah. So, we get... Ego saying that he wants to basically spread out and become supreme ruler of the universe. And basically he's going to test himself against Thor by creating the most powerful singular version of himself and fighting Thor. And if he can beat Thor, then he can beat everyone else. And it's a little silly, but it kind of works. Thor and the recorder basically go through a series of fighting Ego and all of his antibodies. Yeah. Uh, they keep talking, they kept mentioning, like, he's forming his biomolecules into an antibody. And I kept reading it as, like, an antibody, like, mm. in the same way that Stan Lee uses, like, 
these are negative molecules, or this is the anti-space, or whatever. It was like three quarters of the way through this issue that I realized that he was just saying, like, antibody, like, our immune system's yeah. response. <laughs> yeah. Not some, you know, willy-nilly, like, silly Stan Lee jargon, which is fine. Like, I yeah, they're kind of like mindless ones where they just have weird heads, but they got humanoid bodies i guess yeah i just i felt silly because like i work with antibodies all day long at my job and for me to read most of this issue and him to use the word antibodies so many times and me still thinking that it was just some like i use negatively charged protons or antibodies like yeah anyway how you expect that. um basically thor gets to the core of ego again very similar to the guardians of the galaxy yeah and strikes it with like a thermal blast something like that like a big storm blast mm-hmm. Which defeats Ego, and Ego decides, oh, okay, well, I'm not <laughs> quite as tough as I thought. Maybe I won't go and destroy everyone, and I vow to not mess with you or the Regalians anymore. And that, that's kind of how this, I- this issue ends. The only other thing I'd say is Jane Foster has this weird encounter with this guy who's named Porja at a restaurant where he tries to lure her in to, like, teach for them, whatever that means. And he brings in this other guy who's this mustachioed guy who gets real creepy and starts talking about, like, genetics and evolution. He's got <laughs> like, a monocle our... and a beard, and, yeah, he's a bit of a creep. And and this stuff is going to come up in the rest of Thor next year, I think. And it it's interesting-ish. <laughs> this high evolutionary stuff is... It's a mixed bag. Some of it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I like Ego. Um, I, I just want to say, like, I really like him as a cosmic addition to, mm, yeah, to Marvel. Yeah. I, I do want to... It's not the first time anyone's had a planet as a villain. There's a really fun um, early Captain Marvel story. I think it's called Captain Marvel vs. the World, in which he fights the planet Earth. I highly recommend that as a Golden Age <laughs> issue that everyone read. <laughs> yeah, it, it's again, it's one of those things where it's like, this is a great idea. I hope someone really runs with it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean the art. The art is great. Lee and Kirby will. They'll, they'll yeah, actually okay. get to it in their in their own time. I think this is strongly like if the art is really what holds this up. The art and like the idea of this, but yeah. the actual story is kind of rote. Yeah. Oh, oh, I do like one thing. The recorder gets all smashed up here, and Thor goes back to save him. And the recorder talks, you know, like you said, robot speak, and he says, "Observation: For the first time, a recorder feels the emotion of gratitude." Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's good so that's gonna do it for 1966 uh we're seeing we're seeing marvel pick up here i'm, I'm excited we're, we're, we'll have a recap next week about this i'm excited to talk about this in depth just kind of an overall view because i think i think this is starting to get interesting um they're starting to get good yeah the deck in, the the universe is pretty pretty fleshed out you know it's um it's a lot less origin although certainly characters are going to like there's a gazillion char- characters getting added every year but yeah. it's in it's an interesting place, and again, like I've said, you know, in the first one, like sixty six is, I think, the best best year for Marvel of this decade um, of the sixties. Okay, yeah, yeah it's, it's it's my personal pick I, because of a lot of the classics. We so covered. far, what we've read so far, yeah, 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 definitely. Well, and just like Impact too. Uh, all right, so uh, this year's poll is the worst Stan Lee tropes. So we have as our options his overwritten prose, his nonsense science. His casual sexism or sad sack male protagonists, his reliance on deus ex machinas, and if you don't know what that means, that means kind of like the plot contrivance at the very end that gets everyone out of trouble, or it's something that swoops in at the last second, which we've probably seen a bunch of. That, that pill that turns the Hulk back into Bruce Banner that's introduced one panel before they put it in his mouth. <laughs> it's Latin for two machines. 
I believe is roughly the translation. Tomb machines? Two, T-W-O. Are you, I don't know if you're kidding. It's a joke. I mean, it's, it's a little joke. Oh. A little joke among little. friends. Yeah. <laughs> I was really worried that I was going to have to be like, Dave, I hate to break it to you, but someone lied to you. <laughs> uh, the, the final option is recycled plot points. Uh, so you've got a day, basically, to go cast your vote on Patreon if you're a Patreon backer. Speaking of Patreon, come support us there. Uh, we're really trying to get up to our next goal of 250 bucks, which will uh, we're going to start doing quarterly Q&As, which basically write in, ask us to discuss anything, not just the comics of the year. We can talk about comics in general or how the show's made or whatever else you're interested in hearing us talk about. We're going to put those out every every three months. Yeah, absolutely. We've also got the Slack community there. You probably hear us talking about, um, which if you're oh, a Patreon supporter, it's a lot of fun. You can talk to people as they're reading through the club. Um, again, you don't have to. Again, just listening is, is thanks enough. Uh, but again, if you want a little bit more, want to dive in, go ahead and, and check us out on patreon.com slash year. I would also say if you're listening, iTunes, anywhere else, please uh, rate and review. Or, or just share with a friend. Thanks. It's it's so exciting to read those yeah. reviews. When, when they come in, like, I, I check that, like, every few days. And I'm always so excited when I see an, another review come in. So. Yeah, it's awesome just to get feedback and to see that people are checking it out and, and potentially enjoying it. So thanks to everyone who has done that. Um, if you get an opportunity and, and think you can, that would be great as well. And next week is our 1966 variant, 1966 variant cover episode which is where we're going to recap the year, read your listener feedback, discuss the poll results. If you want to get your listener response for us to read on the show and discuss, you've got till tomorrow. You can send that into mymarvelousyear at gmail.com. Yep, find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the usuals. Music for My Marvelous Year is by Disaster Peace. That is Disaster, P-E-A-C-E, as I like to point out. Check out their music, or his music, I should say, on Spotify, SoundCloud, Bandcamp, anywhere you find your tunes. Oh, hey, you know, you know what? I had a weird experience this last week. I downloaded the game where our soundtrack comes from. Okay. I don't even remember what it's called anymore. It's like some children's. Uh, no, our song's called Children's Sport. Uh, it's from like I Cannon Brawl, I think. It, yeah, it's called be. Cannon Brawl, and it's yeah. like an Android iOS game, and it was very surreal. Like pop, it's it's weird. The game's so so. It's fine. A little uh -huh. time waster. The soundtrack is so good. That yeah. entire soundtrack is awesome. But it was very surreal, like, playing this game and then just every once in a while, like, this theme song that I hear constantly from our, our podcast pop up. we got to figure out context. how to get our podcast audio to play in the background of a, of a tiny mobile game. <laughs> yeah. All right, good deal. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Again, we'll be back next week with Listener Response episode. But this has been 1966, and we will see you next year. See you next year. 